Thanks for tuning into the Health Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Richie Kerwin, and today I'm going to be speaking with my friend, Dave Nolan. Dave is definitely a man of many hats. Uh, he's got a degree in sports and exercise science from the University of Limerick and currently is based in Dublin City University, where he coordinates research into nutrition and exercise strategies for maintaining muscle in older people. He's also head of performance at Rugby Academy Ireland, a research officer for the weightlifting app Applift. Uh, he's head coach and educator at Synapse Performance, and he hosts the Synapse Performance podcast too. So the guy is definitely very, very busy. But on top of all of that, he's also a competitive powerlifter, and that was probably one of the reasons for him starting his PhD research at DCU, investigating weight-cutting protocols and strength sports. Today, we're going to speak all about the many aspects of weight cutting for weight category-based sports, like weightlifting and boxing, and some of the evidence-based techniques that athletes can use to make weight safely and without losing performance. Let's talk science. How are we doing? I'm very well, sir. How are you? I am very, very good. Delighted to have you on tonight. I'm very happy to be here. You've had some great guests on in the past. Some some charlatans. You had that Alan Flanagan lad on. He's he's a complete charlatan. But <laughs> I, I know. You know the caliber. It was a bit, it was a bit dodgy. Um, but like you know, I'm bringing things back up now, having yourself on. Um, I must say, I am impressed with the amount of Irish people I've had on in the last in the last. Yeah, I think in the last five episodes, all but one were Irish. So, um, yeah, it's uh, like happy to get that one. You're, you're a UK-based man now. You're slowly kind of, we're turning the tables a little bit, aren't we? We're kind of slowly infiltrating the UK. I think that's, that's what we're doing. I'm, I'm, I'm getting them from the inside out, you know? Yeah. So, Dave, uh, for anybody who's not familiar with you, um, would you mind going into uh, just giving us a little bit of a, a background as to, to who you are and what you currently do? Yeah, so what I currently do, I, my main hobby is sticking my finger into pies. So I, I do several different things. So I suppose from an academic background, sports science, undergrad, now currently pursuing a PhD in Dublin City University under Brendan Egan. Um, outside of that, run my own company, Synapse Performance. So coaching company, education company, and then just content provider all around for that. From a coaching perspective, I come from an S&C background, currently head of performance at Rugby Academy Ireland, and then also currently the research and development officer with Applift, along with Dr. Cody Hans, that is online strength and conditioning software. Um, so yeah, between all of that, I, I like to keep myself busy. So I, I whore myself out, so if anyone else has interest in paying me for any of my services, please do get in contact. You, you heard it here first. If you're looking for a science hoe, uh, Dave's your man. <laughs> no, that, that's, that is seriously a lot of pies to have your fingers in. Like, um, how do you manage it all? I just don't have friends or social life, really. Um, well, no, that, that's not true. You know I, I enjoy a few pints then as well. You've, you've been on the tail end of that yourself um i suppose i i'm lucky in terms of i do a lot of things but i've essentially just monetized my hobbies if i wasn't getting paid for them i'd still be reading the same stuff writing the same stuff doing the same things so i've just managed to monetize. like in terms of i work in a lot of places but i spend a lot of my time sitting in my boxers in my kitchen table on my laptop so you know what i mean that there's a lot of different things but i suppose just from a productivity side of things, just systems. I think I'm lucky enough early on in my career to know people who are very good and efficient and productive in their time. So definitely having just systems in place and being kind of clear in what you need to get done and getting it done is my, I won't say secret, because I think, like everyone, I'm just bluffing my way day to day, hoping I don't get found out. Exactly, yeah. Um, no, there's a lot to be said for having good systems in place for getting a lot of work done. Um, and you certainly are getting a lot of stuff done. Um, I, like, it amazes me sometimes. Like, even when you were listing out everything that you're involved in at the moment, I was like, oh, Jesus, I need to uh, up my game a little bit. Um, but tonight, uh, I want to have a little bit of a conversation around your, your research now, your current research for your PhD, because you're doing something that I find very, very interesting. And that is your working on um, weight cutting strategies for athletes. And I was wondering if you could kind of uh, talk to me a little bit about how you got into that particular field of research. 
Yeah, so I suppose from my own perspective, um, I compete in powerlifting. So weight cutting is something that powerlifters tend to do. And I, the research, I also balanced my PhD research with I'm employed to do some clinical-based research in as well. So I look at nutritional and exercise interventions for older adults, so sarcopenia population. So I look at strategies like that. So that's how I came to be in Brendan Egan's group and they have other really good guys in that group. You've um, the likes of Mark May and John Connor in there who are doing weight cutting research in combat sports. And I said, Brendan, you know, this is something I'm interested in. And Brendan didn't realize at the time that strength athletes engage in it. And at the time when I started, there was absolutely zero literature and there still pretty much is zero literature on weight cutting strategies for combat sports. So as a powerlifter myself in that group anyway, kind of gravitated towards let's do some research on this. And that, that's pretty much what we're doing at the moment now. Fantastic. Um, it, it's interesting because like when I first met you, you were, um, you were presenting one of your posters uh, about weight cutting. And that's what I thought your whole kind of, your, your whole, let's say, uh, academic experience was based around was sports and, and weight cutting. And then when we were having a chat one night, I realized that you were also doing work on sarcopenia, like you just mentioned. Same kind of field that I'm in, which I thought was like, wow, this is fantastic. And I just want to say, like, you gave me some very, very good help with, uh, with some of the, the work that I'm doing on, on my own project. Some really, really good advice. So uh, I really want to say thank you for that. Um, really, really helped me out. Um, so there you go, everybody. Uh, Dave's your man if you ever need some advice on uh, exercise strategies for sarcopenia. <laughs> um, so if we get into the, let's say, I want to kind of get into the real nuts and bolts of uh, weight cutting tonight. And I was wondering if you um, might be able to first start off with giving us a little bit of an explanation of the difference between weight cutting as we know it for sports, for things like uh, weightlifting or boxing or whatever, and the difference between that and standard weight loss that everybody might be familiar with? Yeah, no problem. I suppose in terms of weight cutting only applies to weight category sports. So sports in which people have to make a certain weight in order to compete. So the obvious ones that come to mind are your combat sports, your strength sports, which is powerlifting, weightlifting. You also have ones like horse racing and then rowing as well as something that people don't often think about as another weight class sport. So within those sports, there's the pressure to make certain weight on competition day or the day before when the weigh-in is required. When athletes engage in acute strategies, so strategies where they just want to bring their body weight down, they don't really care about what their body composition is. It's simply chasing the weight on the scales for scale's sake. Now, there's two phases to that. There's, as you said, there's phase one, which is what most people think of, the diet phase in terms of bringing down body weight over time through reduction in body fat stores, ideally minimizing muscle loss. So you're trying to reduce your body weight over time through a sustained calorie deficit. Where what we refer to as rapid weight loss or weight cutting is that final seven to 10 day period in which we don't really care about reducing body fat levels. We're just looking to manipulate that body weight. So it's a very short term transient reduction in body weight through very different methods. And the idea of a diet is to reduce body weight and improve body composition for the long term and ultimately sustain that weight loss. Where with an acute weight cut, we're looking to, in a very short period of time, reduce the body mass. And then after the weigh-in, in most sports, regain as much body mass as possible that we lost in the quickest amount of time possible. So there are the two phases. So athletes engage in weight cutting will more than likely in all cases do that phase one where over time to bring their body composition where it needs to be seven to ten days out where we're looking to reduce body fat levels improve muscle mass body fat percentage everything like that and then the last seven to ten days is where we're looking to simply augment the number on the scales using different methods just to reduce the body mass and reduce tissue and fluids and different things within the body and we can go into the difference of what we lose then as well compared in the diet phase compared to that last seven to 10 days. Yeah. And I, I suppose that that is really a massive um, and really important difference that you, you, you kind of brought kind of explained there. So, cause like, for example, if, if I'm working with somebody who wants to lose weight and we're just, let's say it's gen pop, you know, we are almost always talking about losing body fat um, because that's going to improve body composition. We want to maintain that muscle. Um, and we don't, while we use the scale weight as kind of like a, just one metric that we use to track changes, um, 
the scale weight at the end of the day isn't the most important thing. It's just, like we, we say, it, the scales is just a number. It doesn't say anything about how a person is looking or how they're fitting into their clothes or how they're feeling about themselves. But for athletes um, who are in kind of uh, weight class sports, it's, it's an incredibly important number because it can be the difference of you fighting somebody who you're genuinely a bit bigger than and can probably destroy or you going into a weight class where you might be the smallest individual and you could get destroyed by somebody else. Yeah, 100%. And even from a financial perspective, if you don't make weight, you don't get the same percentage of parts. You might be allowed still to fight, but you don't get the money that you should have got for that fight. Or if it's a high-level powerlifting event, you don't lift. So if you don't make, like the first job of an athlete in a weight category sport is to make weight first and foremost. At any high level, if you don't make weight, you can't compete essentially or you may be able to compete and have to take a reduced purse. And um, especially with something like boxing, these guys from a, these guys are so committed and from a young age, a lot of these guys put so much into their training and it's often at the sacrifice of education or career outside of boxing. So these guys have just put everything into boxing and then it comes to, you know, a big fight. These guys have to make weight and that's why you get guys will do anything at that stage to make weight so no matter guys will take if boxers are trying to make it they might take um, fights on very short notice it could be a week two weeks or even less and then have to rapidly cut weight for that so there is that kind of perspective then as well so you know anyway category sports the very first job you do is make weight before you worry about actually competing then no absolutely and that's why it's, it's kind of such an important area and that's why I kind of really really want to get into like I said the nuts and bolts of it today um, and I was kind of wondering like just to kind of open up the conversation would you be able to give us a, a little bit of a, an overview of the different strategies that people use for making weight for competitions um, outside of the kind of the fat loss that we, we, we've spoken about already the, the more kind of short term acute strategies people use for making weight and then if you can also while you're doing that just tell us a little bit about where that weight loss is coming from please yeah 100%. So, as you rightly said, there is that phase one, which is just fat loss. And that's, you know, could be in the 12 weeks leading into the competition, whatever it is. And that's coming from normal, you know, calorie deficit. And we're looking to reduce body fat levels there. The last seven to 10 days, we're looking to reduce body weight, but we may not even be in the calorie deficit in order to do so. So there's three kind of main areas that people are going to try to lose weight in that last seven to 10 days. That's going to be true manipulation of glycogen levels so manipulation of levels of carbohydrate in the in the muscle and or liver you're going to look at body water stores so body water manipulation and then also good contents so the amount of digested food you have sitting in the gi tract then as well so there are the three main things so the methods people are going to generally use will be carbohydrate restriction so general food and carbohydrate restriction so the idea if we reduce carbohydrate intake we reduce muscle glycogen and potentially liver glycogen if we go really severe. But we know that each gram of um, carbohydrate stored as glycogen holds on to three grams of water. So we'll also see a reduction in body water through that. In terms of good contents, you may see people just reducing their overall food intake. So going on what we call a low fiber and low residue diet. So they'll go on foods that may be very high calorie, but very low bulk to them. So the likes of taking in all your calories through olive oil or something like this where you're getting in the same calories you might be taking in, but in terms of the amount of actual food weight, in terms of olive oil it take, because you take it, um, 100 grams of olive oil is obviously 100 grams of fat, 900 calories. But if you were taking 900 calories then from, say, potatoes or veg, that kind of stuff, you may be looking at a kilo to two of actual food weight where it's 100 calories or 100 grams of food weight from the olive oil. So that's the idea. If we go low fiber, low food weight, that we reduce, clear out the GI tract, essentially clear out the intestines and clear out any residues there. And we have a lot of, if someone is eating a diet that's high in fiber, you know, a good healthy diet, you're probably going to have a lot of roughage, a lot of digested food sitting in GI tract at any one time. So you'd have a significant amount of weight you can lose there. And then probably the most commonly known is the body water manipulation. So you may do something like water loading strategies where we see people taking a lot of water over two, three days. Uh, the idea here is that we incre increase urinary output. So we downregulate some of the um, 
hormones which regulate body water levels and then we increase urinary output then we reduce water intake very heavily down to very low levels for a day but those hormones take a little while to catch back up is the theory so you're taking in very little water but still urinating at the same um, level so you're getting a flushing effect is the idea so we get a net decrease in body water levels and then also with the body water manipulation, we see active and passive dehydration methods then used, especially in the combat sport. So this is probably what people think of when they think of weight cutting, the likes of hot baths, saunas, sweatsuits, you know, running in uh, bin bags with hood, hoodies on, this kind of stuff. That's then the other method. So there are the three main ones. You're looking at carbohydrate manipulation, body water manipulation, and then good contents manipulation. Right. Um, so, yes, yeah, so for, for a lot of people, when, when you think of weight loss, you don't think of all of those different kind of areas or compartments within the body where, where you can actually lose weight from. So uh, I think it's like it's just fascinating that for, for one, that you've got like these different areas. And obviously, all of these different areas have different strategies that you, you need to kind of to use and to manipulate to, to, be able to kind of bring that weight down. Um, and, was, and I think people even see that in weight loss when they're just trying a diet so to see that rapid reduction in um weight for the first week of a diet and it's probably coming it's not it's not coming from fat loss it's coming from a reduction in body water levels probably it's coming from that reduction to reduce their carbon take so glycogen is coming down and even people will see it if they eat a big meal late in the evening they might weigh themselves the next morning and they've gained a kilo they haven't gained a kilo of fat overnight it's just simply an extra kilo of food sitting in the in the GI system, so or GI tract, so that's how people kind of conceptualize it. People who are used to weight loss will know that their body weight fluctuates up and down. So and they know that it's not body fat is causing that fluctuation throughout the day and day to day. Um, so it's that kind of stuff that we're trying to manipulate in that acute seven to ten day phase, and really in that last two to three days to see that significant reduction in body mass. So, so with these these kind of really really acute phases that you're saying, like let's say let, let's just say like like you said, ten to, to seven days before for a competition. Mm-hmm. Realistically, how much weight is somebody looking at losing? Um, like I, I know it it, it it can it can vary between athletes and what they need to lose and stuff like that. But how much can somebody, let's say, realistically lose in that time period? It depends now in terms of how much they can realistically lose. We have. I, we have data to show athletes have lost 20 kilos or more within the last week. Yeah, that and some super heavyweight athletes can lose 20 kilos. You look at some famous, um, more severe weight cuts, there's guys dropping 40 pounds in that last week in that last weight cut. Um, there is a case study of one fighter dropping 8 kilos in the last 24 hours. And anecdotally, I've heard of guys capable, uh, today I was actually chatting to someone and they were telling me a story about a guy they know dropped nine kilos in 12 hours. Oh, holy so, crap. Now, they're the more extreme end of things from the data we have. And the problem is we tend to, when a lot of people talk about this, they tend to talk as if we know a lot about weight cutting, where the research is very much in its infancy. We don't really know that much about weight cutting because all the data we have, the majority is self-report data retrospectively. So people thinking back, what did I lose? How did I lose it? So obviously that has its limitations in terms of its accuracy, where what we'll hope to in the future is actually follow them and get the practices firsthand. So be there when they're actually doing the procedure. But if we look at some of the empirical data that does there, the self-report, Today, I, I got word, um, I my first PhD paper accepted. We were seeing that competitive, thank you. We see that competitive powerlifters, for example, are cutting on average around 3% of their body weight in that last seven days. So obviously that is dictated very much by they've only a two hour, very short period. And that's more on the lower end of what we would class as weight cutting. We see combat athletes tend to cut more. You know, you could get some of the um, Olympic sports where it's shorter weighing, cutting in that kind of 3 to 5% body weight range. And then you tend to have MMA at the more severe end of things with the reports for MMA anywhere on average from 8 to 12%, kind of 8 to 10 to 12% in that last seven days. So to put that in context, you have guys who are probably weighing 80 kilos on Monday 
and stepping on the scales under 72 kilos on the Saturday, Saturday morning. So Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon. So that's how much you have guys losing in the, and girls. And that's the other area I want to look in. There's females as across all sports science, particularly in weight cutting. Females are very understudied. And obviously we look at everything in terms of relative percentage, how much people lose. But we know that the ratio of fat-free mass, fat mass is very different between males and females. So potentially the same relative percentage loss could have very different effects in males and females. Well, uh, like literally some of those numbers that you've given me, I, I'm, I'm literally gobsmacked right now. But um, so obviously, the, you know, you mentioned some of the different like percentages that people would, uh, body weight that people would lose according to their sport. Um, does a lot of that have to do with the time of weighing? Because obviously within different sports, there's a different amount of time between the time that you step on the scales and the time that you actually, you know, step onto your platform or step into the ring or whatever. Um, does, is, is there some interaction there with the, with the weight loss? Yeah, hugely. Because obviously the methods and the magnitude people use, there's huge cultural elements, sport to sport, this kind of thing, kind of paying homage to the past and these kind of things. But Definitely one of the biggest factors in the magnitude we see is the regain, what we call the recovery or regain phase. So obviously when you cut weight and get make weight, you want to regain as quickly as possible and as much as possible. With powerlifting, you weigh in, you lift in most powerlifting federations within two hours after that, and you're probably warming up an hour after weighing in. So you can't really push it that much, even though we do have people to do it, but you likely can't push it where we have MMA guys step on the scales and they mightn't fight for 24 to 36 hours after weighing in. So those guys, you can really, you can go hard and that's where you do it. That's why you have those guys pushing 8 to 10%. At the lower end, um, probably 8 to 10% is the average probably with those guys from combining for looking at the empirical data, it suggests a bit less. But in terms of between what the data we have and anecdote, I'd safely say the majority of guys are probably cutting in the region of that 8 to 10%, with many doing um, much more severe cuts than that. Wow. And that's, again, just because they've got that longer period to recover after um, before going into a fight. Um, I'm just wondering, so with some a weight loss that that's that extreme, um, does performance suffer? Uh, and, and, like, what, what other factors like do, can, can affect performance? And, like, do, mm. does it affect all sports the same way or does the, the effects of performance differ between sports? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. And again, people will say, be very quick to say yes, but to be honest, we really can't truly answer the, the performance question yet. We have some inklings um, around factors. So in terms of powerlifting performance, we don't really have much research um, there at all to suggest that in terms of the effect on strength. Um, we know that dehydration can potentially affect strength, but it seems to be more so high-velocity movements, high-rate of force development movements, where powerlifting is a kind of slower contraction velocity, maximal force output thing, so probably not as sensitive to that. In terms of the majority literature has been done in combat sports, and the problem with that, different to powerlifting, which is very, you know, it's a single objective number, they either lift it or they don't, there's so many factors that influence performance in combat sports so you if someone loses a fight you can't really say that's down to their weight cut that's why they, they, they lost the fight in terms of what we do have we see that once you kind of go above that threshold of five percent once you go above five percent um weight cut after re, and the after the recovery period it seems that's when you get into the area where performance seems start getting negatively affected and more so the research has looked at um, repeated high effort bouts, so repeated high e intensity efforts seems to be once you go above that threshold and even recover their ability to do high intensity exercise and repeated bouts of that seems to suffer a little but with everything then there's huge levels of inter-individual differences and that's all my research kind of is driven around what drives inter-individual difference so you have some guys will cut 8 to 10% yeah, yeah. and it's effortless to them, they'll recover and be fine where that will nearly kill um, other athletes. So there's certain factors we're looking at that's driving it there. So in terms of the negative effects, it could have, obviously we said it's this repeated endurance kind of stuff. So things are more kind of aerobically and anaerobically dominant. It's it's going to have much more of an effect, we think, 
than more strength-focused things. The literature would seem to suggest that looked at um, actually to a weight cut and then the level of regain, so how much of the weight that the cut they had regained before the fight. And there seems to be a correlation there that those who regained the most had the most competitive success in that um, subsequent competition or subsequent grappling match. Now, there's a few limitations that obviously you can't say that it's simply they regain more weight, so therefore they're a better grappler. It could be a case of those who are longer in the sport, more experienced, tend to do more um, severe weight cuts because they've learned how to weight cut more efficiently. So it could be that the guys who cut more weight are simply better grapplers and we're always going to win that regardless of how much weight they regained. In terms of striking sports, does not seem to be the same kind of relationship there between weight regain and competitive um, status. In terms of how it potentially could have some health implications, and again, people are quick to jump to the boat and say that the data supports this. There could be some brain morphology issues there in terms of most of the research that has looked at hydration status and the recovery of hydration status after weight cutting is using um, urine osmolarity. So simply the urine stick into thing. The problem with that measure, and even there's limitations with people using it in sports performance throughout the day, urine osmolarity testing is only validated for waking morning fasted urine, so the first urine of the day. It hasn't been validated for use in the middle of the day after feeding at any other time than that it's an unvalidated measure. So we don't know if that's a true reflection of um, hydration status. And also, we don't know if you are rehydrated by urine osmolality, does that actually confer that you are fully rehydrated in the brain? So that is the, there is a theory that although they may look rehydrated and urine osmolality may suggest that they're rehydrated, the brain has not fully rehydrated after that 24 or 36 hour period and therefore is more susceptible to concussive blows from strikes within the fight. So there is the potential there that weight cutting could increase the prevalence and our, and our severity of concussions in a fight. But again, that's something that has to be teased out in literature. It's just a theory at the moment, but it is a potential implication then we need to look at. And, and it's potentially a huge implication because when you think of it for, you know, combat sports, especially the striking sports, if, you know, dehydration does in, you know, results in somebody having, you know, putting their brain at greater risk of a concussion, that's a huge concern for somebody who's going to be stepping into into the ring because you're putting yourself at, at great, like when you step into the ring and, you know, you, you know that you're going to take a few shots to the head, you know, there's a certain level of acceptance to that. But if you know that going in there dehydrated is going to put you at even greater risk, um, you know, it's just something that really, really needs to be considered. Um, and then what is well established, I suppose, even like from the physiological perspective, all the research that has looked at the effect of weight cutting on performance it's all either showed that it has no effect on performance or it has a negative effect on performance. So there's no research to show that, you know, it had a positive effect. So we're kind of at that stage with the current body of literature that we say, okay, it either has little to no effect or has a negative effect. So it's obviously not having a positive effect. So it's how do we minimize those negative effects? And the big issue that people tend to make, it's not the weight cut itself. It's generally the recovery strategy. How well can we get them to recover in this specified recovery period because if they don't rehydrate properly, we the biggest thing that we do know is dehydration leads to increased rate of perceived exertion and that's well established across the literature. If someone is just a little bit dehydrated, their perception of how difficult any task is increases. So in terms of if dehydration, say for a powerlifting perspective, there is the idea if they're dehydrated or if we have low glycogen availability, that that activating excitation coupling within the muscle might be um, inhibited and that's we might be able to reduce as much force. But again, hasn't been shown where we do know if someone's just dehydrated, hasn't rehydrated properly, that things just feel heavier and they're probably going to bitch out a bit sooner in the lift than if they were fully hydrated. They're just, you know, things just feel heavier, feel the RP goes up and they just won't be able to sustain the same effort and everything will just feel a bit heavier and slower, which obviously has... Uh, I think people, when they think... The, everyone in the weight cutting community or a lot of people in the weight cutting community, we're all looking for the physiological answer, but when it comes to weight cutting, we cannot separate the psychology from the physiology. They go hand in hand in this um, area. 
Absolutely. It's, you know, when it comes to performance, you know, the psychology going into a, into a fight or going stepping onto the platform is a huge thing. Um, you, you mentioned a lot of different aspects that can affect um, performance directly. And we touched on some of the issues that come on, on the health side of things when you mentioned, you know, the risk of dehydration and concussion. Um, are there any other potential health implications that people should be aware of um, that are, you know, that they're potentially putting themselves at risk of if going into a into a, an, an extensive acute cut? Well, in terms of at the most extreme end, it's death. People have died doing weight cuts. Uh, you know, what I mean, that that's a pretty that's a pretty um, drastic downside. That's a negative. Um, <laughs> Probably, I, yeah. I suppose I, I, I mistakenly earlier on said your first job as a weight category sport is to make weight. Your first job is not to die. And then your second job is to make weight. But so at the more extreme end, and I don't like being flippant about it, but people have and are still at risk of dying because of poor weight cutting practices. That's coming. Mainly what we see is people go too extreme with their dehydration protocols, with their trying to manipulate sodium, potassium levels, this kind of stuff. And we end up with an issue called hyponatremia. So basically people get too dehydrated, the levels of sodium go too low in the blood to go into organ failure and die. And this has happened numerous times um, across combat sports. Um, first probably uh, wrote about in the mid-90s, I think it was three wrestling students in from 1987 to 1989 in the US, but we've seen it across other sports. So yeah, at the more severe end, people can die. Um, Thankfully, the industry is waking up a bit and different sport and regulatory bodies are trying to make weight cutting safer. Um, Outside of that, there's probably two, I talked about obviously the acute effects of dehydration on brain morphology. You also um, are looking at your blood plasma levels, this kind of stuff. So if we increase in blood viscosity throughout the dehydration phase, you're at elevated risk of cardiac events if you're predisposed to that. So that's potentially another thing. So um, stroke, these kind of things, the risk can go up there. Outside of that, then, probably two that jump to mind that aren't talked about that much. One is um, red, so relative energy deficiency, so in both our male and, and female, because combat sport athletes, by their very nature, train a hell of a lot. They're probably some of the most the athletes that are at most risk of um, overtraining from any population. Um, so if you have that sustained with probably a whole fight camp of low calories, high energy outputs, these people are at risk of red. So that's one potential area. And then also if you have people that are predisposed to um, disordered eating, body image issues, this kind of thing, you are simply obsessing about every morsel of food that goes into your body and the scale weight, everything comes down to obsessing about that scale weight. And the problem is we, we used to have a culture where people would make weight and then after fight pig out and, you know, spend two, three months, get themselves out of shape, get fat again, and then go back in where we have more of a culture now where guys and girls are trying to stay in shape year round. So they're trying to stay lean. So if it's a case that, you know, they've gone from where before we would have had them at, you know, a 12 week camp and they're at risk of kind of reds and that kind of stuff in there. Now they're trying to keep that low body fat and to do that by keeping the calories low, still training excessively. And if you're doing that year round, you're shifting to probably a relative energy deficiency year round potentially and into the disordered eating, body image issues, these kind of things. And obviously those things come with a plethora of potential um, injuries and these kind of things then as well. So it's absolutely nothing to be laughed at when you think about it because there are some serious side effects that can, you know, come about from, from an acute weight cut and from, from all of the changes that happen in your body and especially from the dehydration. Um, but I, I get the impression that a, a lot of people kind of go into doing a weight cut with very, very little information. Um, and like you've said yourself that, you know, it, it is a very, very nascent area of research and that there is a huge amount that we don't know about. Um, I, I just, I think it's, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. One thing that, that you did mention earlier was the, the importance of the, uh, weight regain phase before mm. somebody goes into a competition. Um, and I was wondering if you'd be able to kind of talk a little bit about the strategies that people employ, um, after they've weighed themselves, you know, after they've had their weigh in, 
Um, and now the next thing is to wait for the competition without however much time it is before they go in there. Yeah. I suppose that again comes down to it's context specific. So it's going to be based upon what the sport is, um, how long is that regain period and the demands of the sport. So with powerlifting, you're hopefully haven't dehydrated yourself that too severely. You haven't depleted glycogen to huge levels. So you're looking to just rehydrate and get a bit of carbs into the system. So when you step off the scales, the big thing is you don't have time really between stepping off scales and lifting to mechanically digest food. So you want pretty much liquid carbohydrates coming in, liquid, um, I was going to say liquid fluids, but all fluids are liquids. So you want fluids coming in and to replenish some electrolytes there. So generally what you're looking to do is step off the scales, get some carbs in, get some electrolytes in, um, and then if you want to eat some food, that's fine. It's probably not going to break down and digest. But a power lift to meet may go on for a couple of hours, depending on how well it's run. So if people perceive that they're getting a benefit from eating food, that's fine. But your two main ones are your hydration and your carbohydrates. And, and your electrolytes, obviously, that's part of your hydration protocol. So for powerlifting, it's pretty straightforward. Get some of those in. Where people tend to mess up is, as I said, trying to eat real, eat clean, essentially. I've seen people eat potatoes and turkey breast you know, in a little lunchbox where by the time you're finished your deadlift, that hasn't even broke down fully in your stomach. So you want something to really um, clear out quickly and some something that will cause quick gastric emptying. Now, with that said, it should be something that you trialed before within training because where people tend to make the mistake is they try to get stuff in too quickly and end up with just some GI discomfort. So to try to take in stuff that maybe they're not used to um, and try to take them too quickly and end up with cramps and end up having to run to the jacks, um, something like that. In terms of the MMA kind of stuff, you really do have a long time to replenish. So the same thing, your first protocol is when you get off that scale, looking to get in some liquids, electrolytes, and then carbohydrates along with that. And then gradually after, say, you're taking kind of liquid meals, your oil calories and liquids for the first couple of hours, then get in some meals. Um, again, just whatever the athlete feels most comfortable eating. We don't want to force them to eat foods that will make them feel bloated or that will make them have GI discomfort. So we're just looking to get sugar in in any form we can. Like all the carbohydrates are going to break down to sugar. So whatever the athlete is most comfortable and we've trialed in training that they can replenish quickly. But then constantly then getting in the fluids, electrolytes, these kind of things over that 24 to 36 hour period. I, I think, you know, what you mentioned there is about like trialing things out. Um, and I suppose like your own research looks at this. Uh, like you mentioned you were looking at a lot is the inter individual differences, um, are going to be hugely important because I think not everything is going to work the same way for everybody. So having that trial phase with an athlete is going to be hugely important. Kind of, you know, um, you know, scheduling in at some point in their training cycle. Um, a phase where you can trial out different weight cutting techniques and then refeed strategies, rehydration strategies to see what works for that individual. I, I'd imagine that's that's hugely important. Yeah, and even to trial it in the off season. But um, probably the most important thing is within that last that weight cut you do to be very diligent in taking notes of the exact procedure you use because one of the questions that we still have yet to answer in the research is the reproducibility of these methods. So if we do the same weight cutting um, process two times in a row, do we get the exact same results? So that's something we don't know yet. Anecdotally, we tend to see if guys are pretty dialed in that we they're fairly repeatable methods. Um, in terms of then what you use, where people tend to make a mistake is you, the biggest mistake people probably make in their weight cut is not getting their body composition right in the first place. So anytime that you struggle to make weight, it's more of a case that you simply came in too fat for a fight week or meat, meat week. So in that, you just didn't get your body, you tried to cut too much weight, you didn't get your body composition to where it needed to be that seven to 10 days out to do that acute weight cut. After that, um, and even within that camp coming in, people tend to make the mistake of when we're doing that fat loss phase over a few weeks, getting the body composition to where we want to get it to, people are too quick to pull carbohydrates away where we're probably better off taking those calories from fats for a couple of reasons. So in terms of the training 
coming into a competition, we want to be very high quality. So for most athletes, having higher carbohydrates, if we're to take calories from carbs or fats, taking the calories from fats and keeping carbs high is going to be more beneficial for training performance. Secondly, in that last couple of days, if we are looking to see significant reduction in body weight from reducing glycogen levels, well, if we have had low-carb throughout camp in the weeks coming in, our glycogen levels are relatively low. So then when we try to take away carbs, we expect to see this big reduction in body weight, and then we don't see it, and we wonder why. Where if we keep carbs as high as possible as we can for as long as possible leading into the competition, then when we reduce carbs, we see a very significant um, decrease in body weight because of that, because we're coming from such a high level, the magnitude will be much greater. And then also, if we're keeping carbs too low in the weeks leading into competition and um, keeping the fats higher, we run the risk of becoming less efficient at carbohydrate utilization. So, you know, some research suggests that can happen even in three to five days of low-carb um, consumption, that within a day when we go then to refeeding high carbs, that we don't get, we're not as efficient at using that carbohydrate. So by keeping the carb levels high, and these are some of the research questions, what level do we need to keep it at, that carbohydrate utilizations? Um, I... <laughs> The questions, my, the bottom of my screen is blocked, so all I see is the word boners. So I, okay, just, just because this is going to come out in the podcast, we are literally being trolled right now by Alan Flanagan, um, oh. who is who is who is not as, as mature as you, you'd imagine uh, oh. he would be, um, but he won't leave us alone, so I'm trying to hold in the laughter from reading the comments that he's writing here. Um, grow oh, up. I see the last word of the sentence, so all I'm seeing is boners. <laughs> I told you, he's a pure charlatan. I wouldn't believe a word that man says. He comes in with this very um, fine, articulate voice. Like, he claims to be an Irish man, but he's too grand. I think he's a spy for the Brits over in Ireland. That's what I think is going on there. You know what I mean? Serious allegations, my God. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, um, but yeah, we, we uh, God, I, I can't even remember where we were now because of that. Thanks, Alan. Jesus. Um, <laughs> But just, just kind of, and it's very, very much based on, on what you were saying right there. It's like with all these different factors that you, you, you've spoken about that, you know, somebody has to, t- has to bear in mind. Um, I'd imagine that somebody who's going into a weight cut, they need to probably use multiple strategies when doing it, assuming that they, they, they haven't kind of, you know, done their due diligence in, in the, the upcoming weeks and they, they haven't lost sufficient body fat. Um, what kind of... What are some of the best strategies for a coach and an, and athletes, obviously themselves, to 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 kind of figure out the best strategy to use for that individual? So this is a good question, and when it comes to this, we kind of look at a layering effect. Is what we want to do is use the least, use the what is most effective with the least amount of potential risk to performance, and then layer but are equally as effective or more effective would have higher risks and as needed. And that comes down to, it can vary between sport and, like, for example, using mild levels of dehydration for a powerlifter is quite, can be quite um, significant because we only that two-hour period where mild dehydration for an MMA athlete for 24 to 36 hours, that's a low level of risk. So the risk, the same metric can have different risks depending on the context. So in terms of my go-to, and a lot of people don't get what I call the low-hanging fruits here, probably what is most fairly effective and has the least amount of risk and be the first to go to is kind of a low-residue diet. So just simply clearing out the good contents. So that's because you can keep calories pretty much the same, just change up, basically go to, even in some cases, high-processed food. Um, I know... Alan is a fan as well. I put him onto Skittles is what I suggest um, on the the last day or two because you're getting your calories in there, you're getting carbs, where a bag, a little fun-sized bag of Skittles is 25 grams or whatever it may be. So you're getting quite a, a good amount of calories for very little food weight there. So low-residue diet is kind of my first to go to. So three to four days of low-residue diet, reducing gut contents. And that for someone, that could potentially have 1% to 2% reduction in body weight there for someone. So for many athletes, that might be enough to tip them over the line. When we go, then on top of that, you're probably layering for the last, you know, 
10 to 16 hours, maybe a fast in there. Um, so between the low res during the fast and for the last 10 to 16 hours, relatively low risk to performance, but you get a, a decent um, return on investment there. After that, you probably want to go to body water manipulation, be the next to layer on top of that. So we know from Reed Reels Research out of Australia, where they've looked at water loading, that in conjunction kind of with a bit of reduced carbohydrate and low residue that they did, the water loading resulted in 3% reduction in body weight with no negative effects on performance. So for most powerlifters, that kind of combination, you don't really need to bring carbs down that much, a little reduction in carbs maybe, but low residue, bit of fast and maybe into the competition and water loading potentially could be enough to see that three to four percent reduction in body weight that might be even excessive for some people that might even need to cut that much. In terms of context on what the water loading protocol was there, that is three days um, of high water intake. So that would be a hundred mils per kg of body weight. So an 80 kilo athlete needs to drink eight litres of water a day, a hundred kilo athlete uh, 10 litres of water a day. So that was done for, that would be done three days in a row. So if you are competing on the Saturday, you would then have Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday taking high levels of water in. Then on the Friday, you drop down to 15 mils per kg of body weight. So generally it could be between a litre, a litre and a half of intake on the Friday and cutting that water intake maybe 10 to closer probably to 16 hours out is best. So for the last 16 hours, you may only take in sips of water um, and then use that and then obviously get all the fluids back in after the weigh-in. Once you go beyond that, if you need to kind of get into that 4 5 6% level for the MMA or combat sports, you're going to start reducing carbohydrate intake then. And how far out can vary depending on um, how much you need to cut. So you could be reducing carbohydrate from anywhere from 3 4 up to seven to 10 days out. So reducing your carbohydrate level intake on top of that. Then if you really need to push then more than that and you're going to um, the MMA levels where you're going up to that eight to 10 to 12%, that's where you get into the active dehydration strategies. So you're doing all of what I've mentioned already, but then in that last 24 hours, you're using methods such as saunas, you're using um, hot baths, towel wraps, these type of things. Um, there are more passive methods or you have guys using active methods so getting on a treadmill, going out for a run in um, gear bags or sweatsuits, hoodies these type of things so they're kind of what you're using the other severe things we hear people talking about is um, you have people using diuretics but a lot of those are banned, but things like dandelion root and again hasn't been shown we don't have real research to show if it's effective in the weight cutting context and then also laxative, something like that, people may use then as well for the more severe. But what I said there, kind of the low residue, the um, water loading, carb depletion, glycogen depletion, and active and passive sweating tend to be what the way you would layer it. And obviously, as you go up along that, you have more relative risk for the performance decrements coming from there. I suppose then, so that's the priority I would go generally with clients and with myself even personally. But where people tend, I think, to make a mistake then is on the morning of the weigh-in, kind of assess where you are on that morning. So say, for example, me as a 93-kilo athlete, if I wake up and I'm 91.5 kilos on the morning of the weigh-in, you'll have people that grant I'm underweight and they won't drink or eat, where I have a kilo and a half to play around with at that stage. So I'll get some food in, I'll get some fluids in, um, probably sway more towards getting the food in at that stage, bit of fluids, and bring myself up, say, to 92.3, 0.4 kilos, and then get to the venue, step on the scales if I can, half an hour out, see how much I still have to play with, and then eat my way up to close to where I need to be and get in the fluids where that's you need to be. So that's essentially the kind of hierarchy that people tend to follow. Um, there are some other methods off the wall, things you'll hear people say, but um, that's the kind of hierarchy I tend to go on, the strategy, the layering effect I tend to use. Like, Dave, like just, just listening to, to those strategies, it's, it's an incredibly complex set, group of, of, of different strategies that people could potentially use. Mm-hmm. And like all I can think in my head is that, my God, it must be incredibly important to have somebody who actually knows 
what they're talking about and who has done this before with multiple other athletes and who has done it safely. Um, I don't know what are your own thoughts on that yourself. Yeah, like like with every industry, I won't name any names, but there's quite high-profile people involved, say, with the UFC and stuff that are, are out now charlatans. There's no other way to say it where athlete safety doesn't really come into it in a lot of places. And like that, with the powerlifters, I don't think in most cases we're just simply not putting enough weight that we're going to be at really dangerous health implications. I think the worst that's going to happen in the powerlifting scene is more towards performance things. But definitely in the combat sports and the MMA world where you're looking at that 24, 36-hour regain phase where guys are trying to push the limits. And there's a cultural thing within combat sports um, with a lot of guys that think the more severe the weight cut and the more weight they can cut, the more advantage to have. So it's almost like a badge of honour in a lot of sports where they got through a really hard weight cut. And if the weight cut isn't hard, you know, if the weight cut's too easy, then they're not the best they can be in that fight. So that kind of thing, you have people pushing to the extremes of the weight cut. If you don't know what you're at, you can have um, quite negative health consequences there for the athlete. And obviously, as I said, in the fight itself, if they're not, um, if they don't recover effectively after that weight cut, they're more than likely at increased risk of injury and increased risk of performance decrement, which could be um, very detrimental to the career as a whole. Absolutely. Um, I, you kind of mentioned there uh, like a, about certain techniques being a little bit ingrained. I, I was thinking like something that came to mind straight away is, is, is boxing because boxing is you know something that um, I consider, it's a sport that I consider to be very, very much based on kind of tradition and um, and, and very, very much dogma-based and not necessarily kind of science or evidence-based um, with the, some of the practices that they use. And I just was wondering from your own experience, does that seem to be the case um, with, with weight-cutting strategies as well? Yeah, it can be. Like in terms of, from my own research and from other research, we've shown like the biggest influences on weight-cutting strategies of how people could choose to cut weight it's not doctors, it's not dietitians, it's not nutritionists. Every study or most studies will say the biggest influencers are the coaches and other fighters. So they're the type of things and other lifters. So you have the coaches and especially within sports like boxing and combat sports, most of the coaches are former athletes themselves. So they don't come say, from an academic or scientific background. They come from they were athletes themselves, so they pass on what they did. So there's this kind of paying homage to the past, which can certainly come true. Now, the field as a whole is improving. There's some really good practitioners in this area in terms of the combat sports. You've, you know, you've the guys at Sigma. In my own research group, you have Mark Tremaine, John Connor, very good practitioners. Uh, I know another colleague of mine, Dr. Paul Rimmer, works with high-level boxers. So you have these practitioners that are coming up and doing really good for the sport. But like everything, you will still have these old-school mentalities the guys like the more weight I can cut, the more advantageous it is. And the more severe, the more difficult the weight cut is for me, the more competitive edge I'll have. So there is those type of things. But as a whole, I think the culture is starting to shift. And, you know, you have high performance units popping up in the boxing world that are starting to kind of promote better practices and most more evidence-based practices. Absolutely. And, and hopefully it'll, it'll continue to develop like that. Um, do, do you feel that, within combat sports that like weight cutting is always going to be there. It's always going to be something because obviously, you know, we've spoken about some, some hugely like detrimental side effects to it, not, not only to performance, but to, to health, which is even more important. Um, and like, I, I can imagine that there are probably some movements that are considering like, you know, like well, why not just do away with, with weigh-ins altogether? Um, like, oh, uh, so, or, sorry, do away with weight cuts altogether. Do you, do you, do you think that like, that weight cut culture is always going to exist in some form or another within um, combat sports. Yeah, I, I think so. As long as you have weight categories, there's always going to be people making weight. Like it's, it's probably in terms of powerlifting, it's probably a bit more difficult because our disparity between the weight classes are huge. Like take IPF males, it's like it's under eighty three or under ninety three. So you know what I mean? It's it's ten kilo of a swing. So if you're bang in the middle most people will likely try to cut down. There's always that bias to cut down where in combat sports, the weight class are a bit narrower. But you will always have that bias that guys will think, and girls, 
you know, if I'm bang in the middle of two weight classes, if I cut down, I'd rather be cut down and be a bigger guy or girl, a bigger, stronger girl in a lower weight class than try to eat up a bit or compete as I am and be on the smaller end. So there is certain practices coming in where, you know, they're trying to push where athletes have to stay within a certain weight range and they can be weighed, you know, an X number of weeks out from a fight. But I think, look, it's always going to be part of the culture. It's always going to be part of the sport. I think we should work with it and try and improve the practices themselves and try to kind of, because as long as it's weight category sport, people are going to try find a way to get that competitive edge and weight cutting is always going to be part of that. And as I said, there's a lot we, we still don't know. How severe can you go without having a negative effect on performance? We haven't answered that question fully. Yes, we've shown that you know certain protocols will lead to reduced um, repeated um, efforts, but that's in a lab setting. It's very different to say if you cut this much weight, that will definitely have a negative effect on your fight performance because there's so multifaceted the outcome of a fight and what goes into making a good fighter and a good um, competitor in that arena. So we still don't know, but and the other. I think I think that is is interesting as well. You have some fighters that you know will do that weight cut over the last seven days. Where you have some guys that do it over a day or do it over you know a day or two. They're like, no, I'm not, I'd rather just go through hell for a day, make weight, than drag it out over five to six days. And in our head, intuitively, we're like, well, that definitely going to have a more of a negative effect on performance, but. We haven't shown that yet in the data. We are, we don't we're not at the stage where we can 100% say no. That's the wrong way to weight cut, because then you have the psychological where they go through a day yeah, to prepare yeah. to go through a day of um, torture, but then they feel like they've done it before to get into the fight. Where other guys five to six days of weight cutting might drain them mentally. And then also the other thing that we need to tease out is the learning effect, both from a psychological and physiological perspective. Um, it seems to be anecdotally anyway, guys and girls just get better at weight cutting and learning how to weight cut and deal with it from a psychological perspective. The perceived level of effort for the same relative weight cut seems to reduce with each um, exposure. So there could be a, a learning effect there as well. Absolutely. Um, just just before, like, like I, I've, you've been really generous with your time. Um, just before we finish up, there's, there's one thing I wanted to ask, and that is, like, are there any particular practices within weight cutting maybe you're not familiar with them yourself but you have heard of them you know from your research or even anecdotally that you really wish didn't exist in weight cutting at the moment um in terms of the practices themselves no like you're always going to have some ex extremes in terms mm -hmm. of people doing yeah. some crazy things like in terms of <laughs> i know um i have had someone say before that they were about to get blood drawn. They were about to do a blood donation, donate a pint of blood to make weight, but their weight dipped under at the in the last hour or so that they didn't need to do that. But they were fully prepared to give a pint of blood to get, it's half a kilo to get it down. Um, and so there's some extreme things like that. But overall, the kind of more extreme practices are dying out. If there was something that I'd like to see change, it's the idea culturally that weight cutting is part of the sport, I have to weight cut. Because the problem is prevalence of weight cutting is, is is huge in terms of combat sport. The prevalence of is up in the mid to high nineties. The amount of athletes who engage in that sport who engage in uh, or weight cutting. In powerlifting, it's up there in the kind of mid eighties. So of all powerlifters, you're kind of mid eighty percent or were eighty to eighty five percent are engaging in weight cutting. And the problem with that, you have low level powerlifters and entry level powerlifters who are cutting weight. So you have people cutting weight for their first ever meet. So like you're not going to, you're going in there to your first meet and unless, you know, it's a case that you've just trained to a very high level and you've never competed, you're not going to win your first meet um, or it's not going to be, you know, a making or breaking of your career. So by weight cutting, you're kind of take potentially not allowing yourself to do the very best you can in your first meet. So if you are, you've got to think in the long-term vision. So you've guys cutting weight to get down into classes that they're not competitive in. So if you are looking to increase strength and gain muscle over a couple of years, 
say say eventually you want to end up as a one or five lifter, you're six foot three or four, you say, okay, for my body shape in five or six years, I'm going to be in the one or fives and I want to be highly competitive as a one or five lifter. But currently now you're sitting at 85 kilos. So what we tend to see, a mature decision might say, right, I'm middle of the road, you know, I'm just a small 93 um, for the next year or so, but suck it up because the temptation is, it's only two kilos. I'll cut down real quick for the next meet, 83s. They might come fifth or sixth in the 83. So they're not competitive. They haven't qualified for anything. So the, what is the actual benefit of cutting weight to make it into the 83s unless you're going to be competitive in that weight class? You've simply sacrificed probably kilos off your total to make it into that weight class. And the problem is, in the early parts of your career, that's when you're going to make the most gains. So that's when you want to be taking in these calories. You don't want to be restricting your calorie intake restricting or bringing down the level of performance you can potentially get in training and competition. So that's where I'd like to see if you know you're going to end up as a 93 or 105 down the road, well then slowly over years, stay in that calorie surplus. Stay in a nice um, calorie surplus sustained over years. Take advantage of all those gains you can get from that increased calorie intake and gradually build up your strength, build up your muscle size, get yourself into 93s and then potentially into the 105s where you get that guys in limbo for two or three years where, okay, they cut down into the 83s, then they regain up to 87. Okay, the next meet comes up. Oh, look, I cut two kilos last time. I cut four this time, and I get back down, and then I come up. So you get these periods where they should be just looking to increase your strength. So that idea, if you're going to weight cut, make sure you're weight cutting for a reason. If you're weight cutting just to simply make it into a class, if you're weight cutting because you can, look, oh, I can get into that weight class. But are you getting into it to be competitive or to qualify for nationals or an international competition? If not, then why bother? You're probably taking kilos off your total. Um, the only rationale that I could think of is if you um, are, say, going to end up in the 93s and you're on that borderline of 84, 85, right, when I'm competitive a couple of years down the line, I'll be doing weight cuts. I want to just practice a weight cut for one or two competitions so I understand how I'm weight cutting and I get that learning effect. Then potentially, you know, there's a rationale for saying, yeah, okay, well, this guy is cutting down to this weight class just to learn how to cut weight. But I tend to sway more towards the only reason you should weight cut would be um, to be competitive in that weight class or to qualify for something. But obviously... That's if someone's probably looking, they're at good body composition levels and looking to go up over time to up in weight class. If you're someone that is um, not happy with their body fat levels and wants to come down weight classes over time, well then just gradually diet yourself down, just keep dieting down. Um, if you're in good body composition and you're looking long term down the road to be competitive in a weight class, one or two weight classes above you, then just slowly eat your way and build your way into those weight classes over time. So yeah, if there's one cultural thing, I'd like to see change is the idea that because people just think, oh, I'm a power lifter and now I weight cut. That's what I do. And there is, there is a psychological element there. And we see it in combat sports that by engaging in the weight cut, it makes people feel like they're more of an athlete because that's part of the culture. Look, you're an athlete now, you weight cut, this is what you do. So culturally, it makes people feel like they're um, more ingrained in the sport and they're more of an athlete because this is what athletes do. So that kind of thing I'd like to see change. Absolutely. Um, I, I think like what, what you're really looking for is you're looking for people to, to make better informed, long-term, mature decisions about what they want to do. Unfortunately, a lot of people just want to uh, get on stage and do a weight cut and they're not thinking beyond you know, the next three months or whatever. Um, but yeah, that, that was a fantastic answer. Um, like, this has been an absolutely phenomenal conversation. Like, I, I've learned so much like, in just the past hour. Um, if if people want to kind of to, to follow follow you or um, to learn a little bit more from you, where can they find you? Yeah, so obviously the company Synapse Performance. So synapseperformance.ie is the website. So if you're interested in any of the coaching services or consultation services, anything like that, you can find that there. My Instagram is at Synapse Performance. Same on Facebook, um, at David underscore Synapse at Twitter. And then if you like my monotone bogman accent you can listen to hundreds of hours of interviews i've done on the synapse performance podcast i i 
Unfortunately, Alan Flanagan was a guest on that podcast at one time. Um, I, I probably will delete that at some point just because <laughs> that could ruin my reputation if people know I associate with that man. But yes, that is where I can be found. And again, I'm fairly generous with my time. If people ever wanted just to shoot me a message, they have a quick question about weight cutting or need a bit of advice, that's fine. I'm happy to answer questions across social media. And I, and I can testify to that because, you know, like, like I mentioned earlier, you, you were really, really helpful and, you know, really generous with your time when you were helping me with my own project. Um, I would also recommend everybody shoot over um, to Sinus Performance and check out the podcast as well. Um, it is, like, the amount of guests and the caliber of guests that you've had on is, has been absolutely phenomenal and, like, you've really got an amazing podcast going. Um, so everybody hop over there, start following Dave if you're not doing it already. Um, Dave, thank you so much for tonight. I, you know, I really, really appreciate your time. Um, I've learned an absolute load, um, and uh, we'll have to have you on again, um, talking about, you know, maybe not even weight cutting, but uh, maybe a little conversation about sarcopenia sometime. Yeah, I love getting old people jacked, so we can talk about that too. <laughs> Absolutely, we'll swap, we'll swap notes. Um, Dave, thank you very, very much, um, and uh, I will be talking to you again soon. A pleasure, Richie. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Health Scientist Podcast. I really hope you've enjoyed and maybe even learned something from what we've spoken about today. If you did, I'd love it if you could leave a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use or maybe even share a link on social media. It really helps to spread word of the podcast and it really means a huge amount to me personally. Uh, if you ever want to watch one of the podcasts live or ask questions to any of our guests, you can do so by following me on Instagram at be more nutrition. That's at b underscore more underscore nutrition. And I'd love to hear your comments and feedback about the podcast. So please comment on the podcast post or feel free to drop me a message directly. And if you ever have a suggestion for a guest that you'd like to hear, please do let me know. I'll be back soon with another podcast. See you then.